Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in to another episode in our toolkit series, where we're taking a deep dive each month into a single topic, recapping the basics, but also focusing in on frequently asked questions and judgmental areas. This month, we're all about fixed assets. I think as in many areas where we deal with, you know, judgments and so, we want to make sure you have the proper communication and documentation. That's my guest, Rado Michael Lucy, a partner in the National Office. The current macroeconomic environment continues to put pressure on a company's profile, and Rado's here to take you through the key judgments involved in assessing the held for sale criteria and all the ensuing complexities in accounting and reporting for held for sale assets. There's a lot to cover, so let's get started. So welcome, Reto, to this month's podcast series. And as our listeners know, this month is all about fixed asset accounting. And today, specifically, we're going to be covering assets held for sale. And I know this is something that you know often comes up when companies are looking at potentially divesting. But why would we be talking about this topic right now? Thank you, Heather. Happy to be here. Yeah, generally speaking, divesting of assets or businesses is just a natural part of the life cycle of a business. Or if you think currently with all the disruptions we have in the marketplace, for example, you know, uh, companies are trying to divest their Russian operations, stakeholder pressures around ESG, the inflationary pressures which may cause companies to consider which business they want to be in. So we see more reassessments of portfolios and there with an additional dis- disposal activities. All right. And then I know one thing that Al calls maybe a myth is that people often think, okay, as soon as, you know, I think I have assets held for sale, I have assets held for sale, and it's kind of almost um, like it's an arbitrary thing, but I know that's not the case. So how do you determine if you meet that criteria? Yeah, we have to differentiate two different scenarios. One is, you know, the disposal is expected to be by sale or a disposal by other means, be a spin-off, abandonment, and things like that. And usually we focus on the first one, disposal by sale, where GAP actually has six specific criteria that all have to be met to meet as it help for sale. So um, we'll talk about the other criteria shortly, but first, let's level set on some of the other models. You just made a point that we need to differentiate between disposals by sale and other disposals. So what other types of disposals are you talking about? And are the health for sale criteria only for disposals by sale? Yeah, correct. Uh, there are two different, two additional models. One is if you have a disposal by order and sale, so spin-offs, abandonment, these kind of transactions, there you don't look at those six criteria. Uh, GAP would not allow you to classify those assets as help for sale until you actually dispose of so the time, when you lose control of those assets, you take them off your balance sheet. And then for like discontinued operations and so forth, you assess at that point. But you could not meet uh, asset hub for sale for those because they are not by sale uh, and hence will not meet the criteria. And then the other model that I want to just refer to is if the assets that are uh, to be disposed of have just recently been acquired. So, for example, the company acquires a large organization, but is only interested in part of it. And at the acquisition date, is expecting to sell part of the just acquired assets. In those cases, only the criteria of probable of disposal in 12 months has to be met at the acquisition date 
to be as held for sale at such acquisition date. The other five criteria can be met within you know, a short period of time, typically three months after the acquisition. Okay, so Rita, let me recap. Basically, we have three models, assets held for sale, assets to be disposed of by abandonment or spinoff or the like, and assets recently acquired that the company intends to sell. All of that said, the subject of today's podcast are the assets held for sale criteria. So let's turn back to those. What's the first criteria? First is management of the appropriate authority has committed to a plan of divestiture. It depends on the size of the divestiture, internal policies. That might be just some level of management within the company. It may be the board, uh, depending on the internal you know, approval rights and so forth. The second is the asset or the business has to be in available for immediate sale in the current form. So no significant remediations, for example, or that you need those assets to fulfill some other obligations, maybe on the customer contract somewhere else. Thirdly, you have to have initiated an active program to find a buyer. You don't have to have found a buyer yet, but you have to initiate and marketing the asset. And fourth, it is probable, obviously, that the asset sale is, or that the disposal is going to occur, and it's going to happen within 12 months. Fifth, uh, similar to that, you have to have initiated, you know, finding a buyer, you have to have actively marketed at a reasonable price. So what management believes, you know, is approximating fair value, so you expect to find the buyer at that price. And then sixth and last is, you know, that the plan is committed to is not expected to be subject to significant changes. And sometimes that can be difficult. For example, if a company expects to sell three product lines, uh, but doesn't know if it's going to be one buyer or three buyers, while it may be probable they're going to dispose of those, but that plan is still subject to significant changes. One versus three is quite a different transaction. And so in that situation, you would not have met assets for sale. So just a couple of clarifying questions on a few of the criteria you mentioned. So one of the ones I know that trips up people in practice is when we say management having the authority to approve the actions. And I think sometimes it's very straightforward, especially if the board's involved, there's, there's no one else. But in other cases, you know, if it's just potentially a, a member of management, what type of judgment can be involved in that? Yeah, uh, often, you know, we look to the internal policy, uh, delega- the, the internal delegation policies, uh, what's the size of the transaction. And often, uh, if you have significant transactions, you have uh, explicitly listed stipulate in decision-making. So the board may say, you manage me authorized to go negotiate, but you have final say before you actually sign the agreement, things like that. Uh, would we see more uh, judgment around this often that 12 months window? Is the disposal probable within 12 months? And there, you know, management really has to consider all, circ- all facts and circumstances. For example, have we passed history of similar transactions? What's the industry they're in? What's the regulatory environment? Does the buyer need financing? How difficult might that to be obtained? Think about right now where some of the debt markets may freeze up a little bit. That could affect that assessment. Um, and so there might be circumstances where it's appropriate to conclude, you know, we have asked help for sale when you start marketing it, even before you have talked to a buyer. Other circumstances, it might not be help, uh, probable until you actually have a signed agreement. So management really should consider all the facts and circumstances. So um, I also know that there is sometimes an exception to the 12-month rule. And so when would that come into play? Yes, correct, Heather. There's a circumstance that uh, if management at the time they committed the plan 
expect that somebody other than the buyer would impose conditions on the transaction. So, for example, a regulatory body may come in and say, you have to dispose of a certain part of the assets uh, to somebody else, not that buyer. Uh, but you cannot initiate the actions to meet those conditions before you have a firm purchase commitment. Then you can meet asset help for sale uh, with an expected window of more than 12 months. If you expect to obtain a firm purchase commitment from a buyer within 12 months. Maybe an example of that would be, um, as our frequent listeners know, I'm from the power and utilities industry, and often there is regulatory approval required. So I think the point you're making here is that if I meet all the other criteria and you know, I also have, and I expect to be able to sign the purchase commitment within a year, but then I know the regulator is going to come in and they may have some additional requirements that would not preclude me from meeting the help for sale criteria. Correct. Okay. That's helpful. So then I think the other question I know we frequently get is whether or not the criteria are all weighted the same or whether some are more or less important. No, why they're not necessarily weighted. All of them have to be met. But we talked already, some of them might be a bit more judgmental if they have been met or not. Um, and also important to note that if, like say, you have four or five criteria of the balance sheet date and one final criteria met after the balance sheet date, but before you issue your financial statements, you would not go back and reflect asset help for sale at that balance sheet date. So it's a so-called type two unadjusting subsequent event. You may have disclosures around it in a subsequent event footnote, but you would not adjust your balance sheet. All right. But so what if, uh, you know, you are past the 12 month period and it's not a look back question, but now there is a question of whether you're going to complete it within the next 12 months. Do you move things out of held for sale? Uh, It's possible. You know, we're talking about probabilities here. So we use some words like unlikely, probable, and so forth. So subsequent changes in the judgment can happen. Uh, that might be appropriate. And there are scenarios where you may not have to uh, pull it out of as help for sale. Uh, so, for example, if after you have obtained the firm purchase commitment and now somebody, maybe even a buyer, puts conditions on the transactions. And, you know, as long as you initiate the necessary actions timely, and you expect that these conditions can be favorably met, you can keep an asset help for sale at that time. Okay. Um, so we've talked about now when a disposal group represents um, an asset help for sale. How is this presented on the balance sheet then? Yeah, so the, the most important part is you segregate it on, on the balance sheet, as you say, uh, in a separate line item, asset or liability help for sale. And typically, you stay within your current long-term uh, category there can be situations where, let's say, you sell uh, assets that include some long-term uh, assets and you sell them for cash that you're not expecting to use to settle long-term debt. In that scenario, because you expect now to realize that long-term asset in less than 12 months, you can actually uh, flip it up into the current assets. And then anything other than uh, balance sheet classification that we should be thinking about? Yep. Before we go to the other aspects, also think about the comparative balance sheet. So uh, the pre-year balance sheet, uh, to the extent that the transaction qualifies as a discontinued operation, uh, you're required to reclassify the assets also in the comparative balance sheet uh, to asset help for sale. To the extent it is not discops, uh, it's optional, you're allowed to, but you're not required to. And then how about just more broadly from an accounting perspective? Yeah, so asset help for sale essentially have their own measurement recognition model. First, you stop depreciating, amortizing, and finite lift assets. 
because now expect them to sell and so you no longer incur depreciation for them. Yeah, and then when you reclassify them to asset hub for sale, you also measure them at the lower of their carrying value or fair value less cost to sell. So you may have to write them down uh, at that point. And in subsequent periods, you know, you monitor that to the extent that fair value changes. You may have additional write-downs if fair value decreases or the fair value less cost to sell may increase at which point you're actually allowed to write your asset back up. But obviously your write-up cannot exceed, you know, what you previously wrote all right, definitely something to keep in mind then. And then what are some of the things to consider when you're thinking about that lower of uh, measurement? Yeah, there can be quite some complexities. On that point, I know one of the complexities, the order of impairment testing, which is modified in an assets held for sales scenario. What can you share with us about that? You have a modified ordering of impairment testing. So if you think about, you know, you have these various assets in your balance sheet, you start with the current assets, your CESL, your inventory, then the indefinite lift intangibles, then goodwill that's allocated to the disposal group, and only then are you measuring that fair valueless cost to sell. So you flip the order of goodwill and AC36, the finite asset impairment test, essentially, when you have asset help for sale. Okay. I know another complexity that we look at in the lower of measurement has to do with CTA, so the currency translation adjustment. This would be in the case of a disposal group that's a foreign entity. Another one is uh, auto comprehensive income. So to the extent that you have CTA and other things attributable to the disposal group, you don't reclassify it, you leave it in, in equity, you, know, you don't release it until disposal occurs, but you include it in the carrying amount uh, of your disposal. Okay, so now let's move on to unit of account. This comes into play when the loss exceeds the carrying amount of the disposal group. Uh, another one often that we encounter is so-called question of what's actually the unit of account. It's probably easiest if I use a numerical example for that. Say you have a disposal group carrying amount of 100, it's fair valueless cost of sale 75. So you would expect a write-down of 25. However, the finite lift assets within that disposal group have a carrying amount of 20 and only a fair value of 5. So that's only a write-down of 15. And so the question is now, what does ASE 360 really require? Write-down of 15 or write-down of 25? And because there's no clear guidance, the profession essentially accepts an accounting policy election here. You can either say the focus is on the finite lift assets. I only incur a, a write-down of 15 in that situation. And then later on, I dispose it at a value of 75. I have another, another expense of 10 down the road. Or I say, no, the unit of accounts will be the disposal group. I write down the finite lift assets to their fair value of five, and then the additional loss is recognized by means of evaluation allowance. County policy election to be disclosed. Okay, that's definitely a lot to think about. And I know that's covered further in our PP&E guide, chapter five, including the example you just gave. So then let's turn to our last complexity, deferred taxes. How are deferred taxes figuring to that carrying value of the disposal group? And there it depends on the structure of the expected transaction. To the extent I expect to sell the stock of a subsidiary. Typically, your temporary differences, your tax attribute will transfer over to the buyer, and therewith the deferred taxes associated with those uh, temporary differences will also transfer. And so including those balances in the disposal group and its respective carrying amount. On the other side, if you expect to dispose of assets in an asset deal, the temporary differences would reverse 
and those deferred taxes would reverse as part of the seller's books and not transfer. In those cases, deferred taxes would not be part of the disposal group and not reclassified in asset tax for sale. All right. And then I know one of the other areas where we can have some complexity is in cost to sell. So what do you typically think about when you're considering that? Yes. So fair value less cost of sale is clearly just the incremental direct costs. Gap is pretty clear there. It's those, you know, broker commission, legal fees, things like that. Uh, what the authoritative literature explicitly addresses is things like future operating losses. You cannot include those. Uh, or you think about employee-related costs. I have to prepare car for financials. I have stay bonus and so things like that are not incremental direct costs, albeit associated with the transaction, but they are just period costs and should not be included in, in that measurement. And to the extent that disposal expected by more than 12 months, you would also discount those costs in the fair value cost of sale. So, Rita, let's move back to something you said earlier. I was reflecting on the question I asked you about the case of what could happen if you have circumstances change such that you fell out of held for sale. And you mentioned that it is unusual, but it can happen. So I'd like to delve a little bit more into that so we can understand what would trigger those circumstances and then what would you do? So maybe first we can talk about the circumstances that would not result in reclassification out of held for sale. And then let's look at the circumstances that you would uh, require reclassification. Correct. So we talked about, you know, where you could extend the, the window of the 12 months if things happen subsequently. Also failed to, to mention there, um, there could also be other situations. So if there are unlikely events occurring within a, that 12 month uh, window that we did not expect to happen that are now extending our expectation disposal. And we timely take action to address those circumstances. Uh, we continue to market the asset and we expect eventually to meet, uh, or we achieve the disposal. Then we essentially have a reassessment. We consider those, uh, if they're unlikely, we pursue the necessary actions. And so we can extend that 12 month window. And obviously, the more we do that, the more we do that, the more, you know, pressure it's going to build on the judgment, but it, it's feasible. Now, there are other circumstances where, let's say, I don't no longer have, I don't no longer know how I'm going to dispose of something, or I identified, you know, significant remediation efforts, and so the asset is no longer available in its current form, or there are other scenarios where I realize that the, the price I already thought is reasonable is just not market relevant and um, so at this point i'm not marking at the appropriate price and i meet one of i don't meet one of those other criteria anymore and hence no longer qualify for asset help for sale i have to reclassify it back in asset help for use okay wait that's important to note because that results in reclassification out of help for sale what else goes along with that reclassification you recognize now these assets at the lower of fair value or original carrying amount, you know, plus additional depreciation that I should have recognized had they always been asset held for use. And so in those situations, you typically have an immediate, an immediate P&L effect. If you previously did not write them down, so you kept them at a carrying amount, it just stopped depreciating. Now you have a cumulative catch up. You have to recognize that additional depreciation at the time when you reclassify them to asset held for use, or you may have written them down to lower into the lower fair value less cost of sale and now you recognize them at fair value essentially means you write them up a bit because the costs are no longer a relevant factor in the measurement 
might not be a lot, but at least it's it's a write up. Uh, it's a write up from the less cost to sell up to full fair value. Okay, that's helpful. So, a couple of wrap up questions. Then, I know that you've helped a lot of companies and engagement teams work through these issues, and definitely can be very judgmental and a lot to think about. From your perspective, what's some advice that you would give in terms of, you know, if you're going to be dealing with one of these? Uh, what advice would you give to a company? I think as in many areas where we deal with, you know, judgments and so you want to make sure you have the proper communication and documentation. And with communication, I mean between the different groups in the organization, that the finance organization is fully involved and understands from the biz dev or from senior management, what are we actually going to do here? What's the intention? What's the timeline and so forth? Um, so we have all the necessary information to make those judgments. Documented timely, contemporaneously. What were the circumstances we assessed? What did we think about may or may not happen in the future? Why do we believe we met those six criteria? So that if subsequently something changes, I can point back and say, no, I thought about it. I documented it. There were new things arising that were reasonably not considered when we did uh, have asset help for sale. And then you'll have the appropriate processes in place that actually monitor. Sometimes, as you said, in your utility space, it can take a long time until a transaction closes. So how do I, in a finance and accounting function, understand what's happening out there? You know, I'm going to get timely informed about communication with, author- with the regulatory authorities and so forth to continue reassess uh, those circumstances. Often also, you know, from a tactical perspective, people should not underestimate the data needs. If it's discontinued operations and you have to go back and you have to uh, reclassify your historical balance sheet or, you know, in your P&L, reclassify discontinued operations, you have to prepare carve-up financial statements, deal financial statements, and so forth. There's a lot of effort that can go in, uh, which again goes back to communication. You cannot just drop that on the finance team in the last minute. You have to involve them early on. All right. Definitely great advice, I think, to your point, to any transaction, but definitely if you're dealing with one of these situations. And then where should people go if they have more questions? Yeah, so the uh, our PP&E guide uh, includes a significant discussion around that uh, in Chapter Five, uh, around you know how do when you meet those criteria, how to classify, how to measure them, and so forth. Perfect. All right. So now for the fun part. I think you'll remember this from last time you were on. We always wrap up with stump the guests. It looks like the producers were particularly nice to you today because only one question. And it's multiple choice. So good chance to bat um, 1,000%. What percent of sellers experience higher EBITDA growth after a divestiture? 20%, 35%, 60%, or 85%? Typically, we're selling, you know, underperforming. So I want to say 60%. All right. It's like I gave you the answers. So it is 60%, and I love your logic. Um, so 60% of sellers experience higher EBITDA growth in the years following a divestiture. And uh, the producers added a little commentary here that the right deal can help you keep ahead of the competition, creating sustainable value long after close. So kind of going with your point that often maybe you're divesting an underperformer and so your, your whole company will be stronger. So Rado, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for joining me today. That's our show for today. Tune in later this week for more ESG content, and we'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new toolkit series that's focused on everything going on at the SEC. 
so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.